so last week, uh, well, it was probably two weeks ago, I had an opportunity to um, talk with my neighbor a little bit, and uh, we were talking about our kids and moving on to different areas. His is already in college, and mine's about to head that way. And we were talking about, um, he, he actually brought up the idea of, man, I hope that, you know, we raised them well enough that they're going to do okay on their own. And there's always that fear, you know, as you send them out, are they going to do okay? And so we got into a really good conversation about hoping that we gave them what they need to succeed in life. And so, you know, such things as did we teach them all the things of how to create a, a bank account so they can put their money somewhere and actually invest it, do, do smart things with their money rather than just spend it all. We talked about um, how to pick classes and the right classes and to do that well and to make sure they're on the right tracks. Uh, simple things like that to big things actually in the conversation. We talked about even how to set up boundaries for themselves, um, whether that be spending or whether that used to be relationships. And it was just a really unique conversation um, about the, the how-tos that we hope that our kids uh, somehow um, learn from us and can take further. But as I left the conversation, um, I thought that the hows are great, like how to put up a bank account, how to uh, pick classes, those are good things. But the question I left with, and it's the question we're going to look at today, is really less about how and more about who. And so let me explain that. When I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, how to put a bank account together is great, but why do I want her to put money in a bank and do those kind of things financially and have the right, you know, things done? Well, the reason is because I hope that as she saves, she can be generous with her money, right? The who is that she's generous. The how is just working with money. The how of, I hope that they pick the classes that they need to get and they do the work they need to get done in class and colleges. The how is classes, but the who is, I hope she's a really responsible young lady in my life. I, I pray that she uh, takes um, determination and, and actually does things with responsibility and, and, and a weight to it that's, that's healthy. Um, the how of putting the right boundaries in place is really more about who they are. Like boundaries are good and setting those up. But the who, really, and I would say probably the same for Hannah's house, is the, the who is we want them to be more self-controlled, right? We want them to have some self-control in their life, and I want them to be a self-controlled individual. That's a, that's a different ask. Uh, friends of how to pick friends and all those things that come into it, that's good, and how to do that's important. But I hope that the who is that she's a very caring person. Um, this morning as we journey with Jesus, we're going to look at this theme of like, how do we look at who we are, not just how or what we do, right? Because we can get caught up in a lot of the things of how we do it and what we're supposed to do. But ultimately, if we don't know who, it's really going to change the dynamic. I think who is a lot harder. Um, I think when I think of the person that we want people to become or who I want to become, that's a lot harder. And it's also a lot more motivating to think who over how? So that's where we're going to head today. We're going to look at Jesus. We're going to look at a story as we journey to Jerusalem and look at this idea of who he is, not just how he did it. And so just to kind of give you an overview this morning, this morning of where we're going to go as we journey towards Easter, I mentioned last week that we're going to take a break from Genesis and just journey with Christ through the days leading up to Easter and the crucifixion. And so this slide, I don't know if you'll be able to read it all or not, but um, that's kind of where we're going to be heading. So March 6th, uh, today we're going to look at Thursday through Sunday of the weekend before he heads into Jerusalem for the last time in his life. So if you're thinking on a calendar, think the weekend before Easter, the weekend before his crucifixion. This is the Thursday and Friday. This is his last weekend really here on earth fully uh, on March 6th. And so that'll be Luke 19 
is linked with that. And then you see Monday to Tuesday. Uh, we're going to look at that next week, and we're going to look at Luke 19, some, Luke, some, some of Luke 20 and 21. You're going to see all those kind of linked together in March and Monday and Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, you're going to see March 20th and 27th. And then Friday, uh, April 3rd, 10th, and 15th, we're going to dedicate a lot of our sermons to the Friday uh, um, before Easter. But that's kind of where we're, we're seeing as far as sermon schedule is the top row. If you look at the bottom row, that's scripturally where everything is as far as if I were to kind of find out what's happening in the life of Jesus, that's where you'll find it in the book of Luke. And that's where we're going to be as we head along. So to make that a little easier, uh, this slide may make it a little more concise. But March 6th, we're going to look at Thursday to Sunday, March 13th, Monday and Tuesday, and then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And we're going to look at from 3 a.m. to 12 a.m., 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. But that's kind of where we're heading through this journey to Jesus. And so today, uh, we're going to just be in the first weekend leading up to his crucifixion. And we're going to find out where he was, what was happening, and uh, jump into that this morning. So you'll see this morning as we jump in, we're going to be in Luke 19. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. We're going to cover some large chunks of Luke 19 this morning to kind of get us a feel for what's happening during this this weekend here as a Thursday all the way to uh, Sunday goes. So let me start with the end, and that is Sunday. And this is probably the most familiar story of this weekend in Jesus' life. But on that Sunday leading into the crucifixion, you would find Jesus at the triumphal entry where he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And this is found in Luke 19, 28 uh, to 40. And uh, I'm just going to give you a recap of that. You, you may have heard the story before, but basically there are palm branches laid down before their king. They're singing Hosanna in the highest. And this humble king is riding into Jerusalem for the very last time. Imagine that he's not only the humble king riding in on a donkey, but he's also a humble king because he's riding into Jerusalem, which is his town. It's, it's his area. It's where the temple was. It's, it's, this, it's the city that was known to house God himself. And he rides in humble into this place of Jerusalem that he owns, that he is king of. And the king rides in very, very differently. Very unlike probably what a lot of them thought. Um, some One commentator says it like this, it is as if once more we heard the roaring of a lion of the tribe of Judah, Judah before the lamb gives itself to be led to slaughter. Much like March is this in like a lion, out like a lamb, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem the opposite. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem like a a lamb and not a lion. And, And you'll see he goes out more like a lion and he comes back as that power. But we see perfectly here this idea of a humble king. And so this idea of who and how plays out in the triumphal entry on the Sunday in this idea that we have a humble king who is the who. And the how is all about the donkeys and the palm branches and the disciples that are all around him. And but the true who is a humble king. And that's important for us. And, you, you know, you're like, you just skipped over a whole big story. I know. Um, but, but for the sake of this morning, I want you to focus on that idea of a humble king that is preceding where we're going to spend a lot of our time, which is the front end of Luke 19. Okay? So I want to look at Luke 19. We're going to look predominantly at verses 1 through 27 today. Uh, but... Know that the end of the weekend is a humble king riding in to his hometown. Luke 19, let's begin in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Now Jericho to Jerusalem is an interesting uh, place geography-wise because you actually travel up to Jericho and then you've got to travel up to Jerusalem. 
Does that make sense? A humble king is going up and ascending and ascending and ascending and ultimately will go to his death. But Jericho is this city that you just keep going up. And Jericho, uh, this is a little caveat, but Jericho housed a palace uh, and a palace that was known for a great, well, a okay king <laughs> at that point. And this palace was dedicated to Herod's son. Uh, and the place in the palace was the p- palace of Herod Archaeus. And you're like, okay, where are you going with this? Stick with me. From as early as the Hellenistic period, Jericho was the winter resort for rulers and rich people in Palestine. This would be Roman generals, including Pompey, passed through Jericho. Herod the Great built his winter house in, in, in Jericho. The oasis was a bustling of activity, and historians from the Hellenistic Roman era stressed Jerusalem, or Jericho's economic, administrative, and military importance. This town was housing to retired generals. This place was housed to retired kings. It was a winter palace for a lot of the hierarchy and power of the day, and it was gorgeous. I mean, palm trees and beautiful sun. It was just a gorgeous, gorgeous city. Why everybody went there. Uh, the... Uh, um, historian Josephus says it like this, in the time of Jesus, uh, Herodian Jericho was flourishing with the construction of numerous villas, the cultivation of date palms, and the production of wine, spaces, uh, spices, and perfumes. And Jesus is said to have passed through Jericho twice, once when he cured the two blind men in Mark and Matthew, and when he converted Zacchaeus, and we're going to see that here in a second, the tax collector. The historical Jesus would have walked the Jericho Road on the final stretch from Galilee to Jerusalem through the Jordan Valley and across the desert. In ancient Israel, this important road was also the border between two tribes, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, which is a whole other Easter egg that you can unpack on your own. But to know that Jericho's importance was significant is to say very little of how important really Jericho was. But Jericho was this city, it was flourishing, and there was a temple to this king, Archaeus. We're going to come back to that in a second. But, but before we get to all that, there's a story that happens in Jericho, and you probably have heard this story before. Because trade and commerce were a big part of Jericho, they needed to have tax collectors there at these ports so that they could collect the taxes that were happening and all the business that was happening. They would take all these taxes together. Well, one of these tax collectors was named Zacchaeus, and he was one of the well-known head of customs at that point in time. And just like customs today, I hate to say it, but we're all aware of it, as many customs are today, they are crooked and corrupt, correct? I mean, especially if you start looking down into third world countries, if you try and get anything through customs, it's, a, it's really rough. I mean, you all know this. You, you send this down and they're like, where did it go? We don't know. And the guy's walking off with whatever laptop you were supposed to ship, right? It, it's a very corrupt system and it was very corrupt even back then. Make it even worse, the tax collector was not only corrupt, he was one of their own. And so Zacchaeus was one of the Jewish people. And as you can tell, was probably not very liked because he had a reputation for taking bribes. He had a reputation for doing all these things with your income and finances, and people never got what they were supposed to, to get because of this man. He cheated many people using many of the Roman tax system. There was a poll tax in the Roman system, and he loved the poll tax. One of the, what the poll tax meant was there was a tax for you being alive and breathing. So if you were alive and breathing as a citizen in Jericho, you get taxed. You're welcome. Uh, there was an import tax. There was a ground tax. There was a fishing tax. There was income tax. There was an every wheel on your cart tax. So depending on how many wheels on your cart you had, you got taxed per wheel. So many people were like, can I do a wheelbarrow? Because this is the way money went. There was an income tax, a wheel tax, a harbor tax, a road tax. 
And often the, ex -or the, 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 the most corrupt went to not the men of the village, but the most corrupt normally went to the women and children because they could tax anybody at any time. And they knew who to go after to get these taxes. And they saw it as a, a violation that, that, that was worse than, I mean, obviously, if you think in our day and age, there's not really, there's a ton of taxes, but to put it in maybe high school terms, that hall monitor, right, that you don't really like, or the one that keeps you from running around the, the you know, get your pass. Do you still do passes, by the way? Is that old and dated? Okay, okay, cool. Uh, they're like, no, Joel, we don't do that anymore. Uh, but yes, uh, hall passes and monitors, and they're the, the narcs that they just love to tell on you, that, that, that kind of people. That's this guy. Like, he just loves to tell on you. He loved to take the abuse, and uh, it just basically report people and take all their money. That's Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, uh, Jesus is going into Jericho, and he says, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. <laughs> that, that's an understatement. The dude was loaded, okay? If he's taking everybody's stuff, he's got a ton of money. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Amen. Amen. Finally, I get representation in the Bible. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, and he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so this story is typically, they believe, happening on that Thursday or Friday of the weekend before. So on that Thursday or Friday, he meets this Zacchaeus. And, and you all remember Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus came with a song because Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee, yeah, okay, wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could. See how weird Christians are? <laughs> Some of you guys are like, what is happening? I did not come, okay. Uh, yeah, so we had a song and it was a thing. So for those who didn't, you're welcome. I'll share the whole rendition later. But Zacchaeus was a man that Jesus saw, and, and, and he noticed him, and he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house, and we're going to have dinner together. It's one of those amazing times. It's one of the amazing few times that you actually see God, Jesus, inviting himself over for dinner, and Zacchaeus gets full attention and focus from Jesus himself, and ends up accepting this Jesus and puts his faith and trust in Jesus. He's one of the few that gets converted directly by Jesus himself. It says, um, he went to his house, so he hurried and came down, verse eight, uh, 6, and when, they saw, and, they all, and when they saw it, the disciples, they all grumbled. Oh, great. Now we got to go to this tax collector's house. I don't like this guy. Can't stand him. We're going to go to his house. We're going to do dinner. Thanks, Jesus. This is great. This guy stole half my stuff last week. We're going to go to his house. It's probably in his house. Like, when I go to his house, my laptop's going to be sitting on his desk. That's the kind of guy this is, Jesus. I don't know how this is all going to go, but I'm sure Peter probably had some words heading into this dinner that was about to happen. They all grumbled, and he, was, he has gone in to be the guest of the man who was a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, the Lord, the half, I'm sorry, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, this is after he becomes saved, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. So he was a Jew. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Here's the amazing response we see as a result of accepting this king, of accepting Jesus Christ. We read in Luke 19:8 that Zacchaeus stood, acknowledged him as Lord, and said, I will give half of my goods to the poor, half of my income. I'm, I'm just giving away. And whoever I have defrauded anyone, I will restore not just once, twice, but fourfold. 
His acceptance of Jesus came with so much immediacy and so much profound um, love and devotion for Jesus that he sold all that he had. And then we get the big ending to the story, and it's a setup to the next story. Because he says in Luke 9, 19, 9 to 10, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, and see also as the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, that's the build-up to this next section in Luke 19. We have the who, which is Jesus is a friend of sinners in this passage. And we also see that Jesus was not rushed. I mean, think of all that he's got coming up in this week. He knows what's ahead of him. He knows that this is his last Passover. He knows he's heading to his death. And yet he stops on a Thursday and Friday to have dinner with a tax collector. And he walks into this house and ends up saving this unknown tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. And he gets this whole section in Luke dedicated to him. Friend of sinners and not rushed. But the how is he just had dinner. He just had a meal with him. And now we get to this other passage, then he's, he's, he's sharing this parable, this, this parable that he, we're going to read here in, in Luke 19, verses 11 to 27. So let me read the parable, and then we're going to get into some context and pull some things out of it. So as they leave the house of Zacchaeus, as they're leaving and heading back, he says, as they heard these things, verse 11, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That's important. So all the disciples thought, this is it. Jesus is coming back. He's going to set up this kingdom. We're going to rule and we're going to reign over everybody. This is the moment. We've waited three years with this guy. It's finally going to happen. So they're excited. This is, this is it. In verse 12, so he tells them this story. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and he said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So the first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities." And the second came saying, Lord, your mind, has made, your, your mind has made five minas. I turned your one into five. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. Or in the Greek, I have kept laid away in this snot rag. For I was afraid of you. Literally, it's snot cloth. Uh, for I was afraid of you because you were a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow, question mark. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, at, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. <laughs> He's already loaded. He doesn't need any more. Give it to the guy with ten. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Verse 27, but as for the enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. <laughs> to which the disciples are like, whoa. Cool. Um, hopefully we reign and the slaughtering is not us in this story. Because here's the weird story. He's just come out of Zacchaeus. He's just come out of a friend of sinners, and then he shares this story about this 
nobleman. This nobleman is in Greek, this is another fun word, it's, it means free man. It was somebody who has been bought and purchased with a price. And this king, this nobleman, sends his servants ahead of him. And they go ahead and, and he gives them responsibility and they are to come back having engaged in business with these minas. Now, here's some interesting things to think about as you think through this context of this story. One, he's telling the story in Jericho. He's telling this story coming out of a house of a tax collector who does business and money for a reason. So this is all context. This is amazing. Jesus does this all the time. He'll take his surroundings and he'll just teach from them. Not only that, but he's teaching about a king and a nobleman and ten servants. And he talks about a king that sent this delegation ahead of him. And this delegation sent ahead realized that they don't like this king and they try to overthrow the king. Now, to put yourself back in the history of this, here's the interesting context of this particular story. According to Josephus, again, this temple, this palace that we talked about of Archaeus in this town, I almost wonder if Jesus wasn't by this palace dedicated to this king, and here's my rationale for it. Archelaus assumed this final will would be followed, making him king, but Antipas angled for the throne by claiming to be a rightful heir, citing his father's fifth will. So here's the thing. There's a King Herod. We all know King Herod. King Herod had these two sons. Archelaus was supposed to be the king. The other son, uh, Antipas, fought for the throne and said, no, it's rightfully mine, citing his father's fifth will. I don't know how many wills King Herod had, but he had apparently five because he's fighting in the fifth will. And Archelaus decided against appointing him king and instead sailed to Rome to allow Emperor Augustus to appoint him. And so Antipas followed his brother and brought a suit against his brother before Augustus. And before the brothers' departure, prominent men in Jewish community began planning to revolt against the ruling Herod in revenge for Herod the Great's countless killings and offenses. So the Jewish community knows who these kings are. They're planning a revolt, and they're planning to kill this Archelaus and even Antipas. And so this countless killings and offenses, Archelaus chose to deal with the revolt, this uprising of, of Jews. He chose to deal with the revolt by killing 3,000 Jews on Passover, okay? So, so it would be the equivalent of a king coming into this town and saying, I will be king. And the town giving this uprising, and we start up this barricade, and we're set up, we're like, no, you're not coming into this town. And what he does is instead, he just takes all the Christians on Sunday, on Easter Sunday, he rounds up 3,000 Christians and kills them all in public. Just blasts them, done, gone, dead. 3,000 Jews on Passover. Believing the problem to be resolved, <laughs> Archelaus and Antipas embarked for Rome. However, while the brothers were abroad, the Jews began a revolution that destroyed several cities, two of which Antipas would later rebuild, and the trouble did not end until Vassarus, Sabius, and the Roman protocure of Syria intervened. Why do I bring you this? Because Archelaus was this king who sent delegates ahead of himself in order to tell them who he was. And this vicious king slayed and killed 3,000 Jewish people on Passover. So as Jesus is telling this parable, it would have been very real to the Jews and the Pharisees and the disciples around them. This would have been fresh for them. This king, like all kings, comes in and he's going to do business. And if you're not for him, you're against him, and if you're against him, he's going to take you out, 3,000 on Passover. This king in this parable is a who of a tyrant king. You will bow before me or die. 
That's his, that's his rule. But this parable is actually really layered in many different nuances. One nuance is you can look at it as the second coming of Jesus Christ. One of it is you can look at it as the coming into Jerusalem. I just want to look at it and say, of the who in this story, I want to focus on the king himself. Because he gives these servants of himself a task, and that task is to, is to do business. If we were to take this into Jesus' world and make this make sense for us today, we could look at this passage and say, Jesus has given us, his servants, a job and a task to do as followers of him. And as, as followers of him, he's, he's telling us to go and share him in, with those that are around us. And, and as he does so, he asks us to make evangelism or sharing Christ a priority. Many look at this and they're like, well, it's about money. No, actually, we find out that it's actually not just about money. It's actually about this idea of sharing Christ and making converts to Jesus Christ. Especially if you look at it at the second coming of Jesus Christ. He says, those who, 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 don't, who aren't part of me will be laid bare. But for those who are following me, we have a task, and that task is to share Christ. Not just to do our own thing, settle in, got our ticket to heaven, we're going to make it to eternity, so let's just buckle in, let's put our minas in the snot rag and just be okay until we get to eternity. That's not what he's asking us to do. It's offensive to the king. He says, instead, I want you to actually think about how to do this idea of evangelism. Now, practically, let's wrap this into some practicality then. We see in Luke 19, a friend of sinners to Zacchaeus who is a humble man who does dinner at his home of a tax collector. We see a king who has servants to himself and says, there will be a reckoning one day, and when I come back, there will be justice done when I come back. And then the third story you see directly after that is what? A humble king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is all put together by the author Luke on purpose. And I think all of it is pointing us not so much to the how, but the who, and the who is Jesus Christ. The who is this king who reigns forever. Here's the thing. When we think evangelism, I think what often happens is we think in culture of today. And we as a culture today are very pragmatic. What do I mean by that? Pragmatic is this. It's a practical approach that assesses truth through the sense of success or failure. In other words, to be a pragmatic or a pragmatist means that it only is true if I see the results, right? And you can look around our culture in many different areas and business and beyond, and many people would say, that's true. Whatever is true, I have evidence for. So pragmatism says it is only true if it is validated with experience or is successful. Put it another way, pragmatism counts numbers. It counts efficiency. It counts outcomes, we are a culture awash in pragmatism. Is there a chart, Justin, there? If you were to kind of see the use of the word pragmatism, you can't see this very well, but from the 1880s to 20 to 2000, I would say even 2021, that graph is shot way up as a culture in the United States. What that means is simply this. As a culture, pragmatism has become such a well-known cultural phenomenon that it has just excelled since the 1940s as a culture. We are just very pragmatic people. If it doesn't offer experiential truth, if it's not successful, then it's not true. Add to this, we are not only a culture awash in pragmatism, we, are in, we have an inerrant value of individualization and selfishness as a culture. 
And so we see things through a pretty weird three lens. One, if it doesn't work, if it's not effective, it's not true. If it doesn't work and effective for me, it's not true. And, And thirdly, I just don't want to think about it because I don't have time and I just got things to do, so it's just about my life. So we have all these things that, that we just live in a culture that says, if it doesn't produce results, benefit me, or come easily, I'm not really interested, right? I think it's just a normal part of the, who we are in the United States. Take this idea of pragmatism and put this into evangelism then, Right? And here's what I want to do this morning. I want to take this idea, if we are called to be his ambassadors, if we are called to make disciples, if we are truly called to make disciples, which starts with evangelism, if we are to make disciples, we cannot do it from a pragmatic lens. We must do it through an identity lens. Because the pragmatic is a lot about the how, but the identity evangelism is all about who. Mike Stiles, in his book, uh, Marks of a Messenger, which I highly recommend, says this, there are numerous obstacles to becoming healthy evangelists, but I am convinced that the greatest obstacle to healthy evangelism is pragmatism, doing evangelism before we ever think who we are meant to be as evangelists. And you know this. As evangelists, you've all been taught how to do it. You maybe have been heard the Romans road or, or ways in which you share the gospel Pragmatic evangelism is about promotion, it's about the sale, it's about closing the deal, and it's about methods, converts, numbers, programs. If we just think pragmatic evangelism, it is simply promotion, sale. Did, did you say it the right way? Did they accept Jesus in that moment? Uh, if not, then you probably weren't doing it correctly, is a lot of the thinking in pragmatic evangelism. In other words, it's, it's this idea of what is the best and easiest, most what is the most easy, I can't say that. What is the easiest way for me to do evangelism is very pragmatic. Just to give you an example of this, um, there was a book that came out, and I won't name the author to, to embarrass them, but, but the author in the 19, I think it was like 2005, there was a book that came out, and I just want to read you a little bit of the excerpt of like what this book will do for you when it comes to evangelism, okay? Stick with me. This book helps you, dis- helps you develop your own evangelism style, one that fits your personality like a glove. You'll discover the meaning and the importance of sharing your faith and learn the motivation and mindset behind evangelism. You'll also get the solid guidance and seasoned tips you need to pull it all into motion successfully. As you walk through this proven, highly effective approach, you'll find your hesitations melting away into enthusiasm for winning lost men and women into Jesus. Could we get more pragmatic in evangelism than that? This is going to match your personality. It's going to be easy as pie. You're going to be the best evangelist known to man. And all your fears and worries will melt away because we will just instead be very excited because it just fits you for who you are. That was 2005. We've come a ways since then. And I don't know that we've actually come the right direction, correct? I think we've actually gotten more individualistic. We've gotten more engulfed in ourselves. And so evangelism is not about that, so much about the how. Yes, we need to know it. Yes, we need scripture. Yes, we need to make sure we're not leading them into false doctrine, okay? But we also have to remind ourselves, pragmatic evangelism is all about the sale when truly, as evangelists, I think what he's trying to get at in this chapter is it's about the who. In other words, who are you leading people to? Identity evangelism is all about Jesus. 
It's all about who I am because of Jesus. It's all because of who I am in Jesus and who my friends and family are apart from Jesus. Does that make sense? So if I look at somebody and I say, it's just about the approach, and Joel told me i got to share the gospel with you, i got the bracelet to prove it, so i just got to tell you about Jesus, that's not what we're going for here. We're going for a deeper friendship level with somebody that says, I know who I am as Jesus. I am his ambassador to you. I am Jesus Christ to you. Christian in the Greek word is actually this idea of like little Christs walking around everywhere. That's what we should be. We're all little Christs walking around for our people, for our community, for our neighbors. And they, apart from Christ, are enemies of God himself. We get that even at the end of the parable in Luke 19. The who answers a deeper question. The who is, if I keep it about Jesus, it answers the who for the person as well. In other words, not just what do I want to be, but who do I want to be? I want to be a loyal friend. I want to be a leading, a, a leading father. I want to be a liberator of others. That's the who. And if I take those who's and I put them into Jesus Christ, I say, Jesus Christ is the loyal friend, so let's watch how he did it. Jesus Christ is the leading father, so let me watch how he did it. Jesus Christ is, oh my gosh, amazing liberator of people. I mean, look at his life. He always asks questions. It's never about him. He's always liberating whoever he comes in contact with. It's no wonder he was invited to all the worst parties. The guy was an amazing relational connector. The guy was an amazing leader. The guy was amazing at making you feel important and liberating you to live at your fullest. That's what he did. And if we can point people to that, that is, that is life-giving. If we just point people to say, you need to become Jesus because they don't make your life better, that's pragmatic advantage. That, that's not a guarantee. It will be him, and Lord willing, in time, it will be better. But ultimately, I'm not leading you to better. I'm leading you to Jesus. Because if Jesus isn't enough, then what do we got? I mean, Paul says that we are to be most pitied if Jesus isn't who he said he is. <laughs> And so we're leading people to who Jesus is and not just how to lead people to Jesus. So as we look towards Jerusalem with him, we see a humble king leading others to himself. And then we read this that gives us even more glimpse into who he is. And we wrap up with this this morning. Luke 19, verse 41. This is your king, okay? This is your king, verse 41. This is after the triumphal entry. This is after the parable, after Zacchaeus. And when he drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. That will happen in AD 70. And tear down the to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is weeping over these people who are like, I wish you would come to me. I wish you would come. There's only two, maybe, I think there's two instances in Scripture of Jesus weeping, and this is one of them, at least in, in the context of other people, and this weeping is over a lost city of Jerusalem. You guys should know better. Come on, you got, you got this. And this king who is a... a is a powerful king, is humble, doing dinner, and even weeping over 
his people. This morning, to, to end out, let me just give you four different areas that may be helpful when we talk about evangelism. We talk about how do I make somebody a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, first off, let me just give you this. You don't make a disciple at all. So just take the weight off your back a little bit and be like, you don't make a disciple, okay? Jesus Christ, that's his job, is to save. Your job is to share who he is. His job is to bring them to repentance. So our job is simply pointing them to who he is. And his job is to save And so let me give you a couple things he is that may speak to our friends and our family around us that may be some practical things that came out of uh, Max Stiles' book called Evangelism. Um, I'll just give you these four. These are his words. One, the who. God is king and in control, so you don't have to be. How many people in our world, we would say, what is it they're ultimately after? They're after control. They want to know that everything's going to work out. And what we can do is we point people to say, you know who's ultimately in control is Jesus Christ, and he is the king and he is in control, so we don't have to freak out anymore. Number two, God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere, and God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. Each of these, I'm sorry, I was Tim Chester, uh, each of these um, resources, each of these statements can be given to somebody and say, what ultimately am I after? Am I after proving myself? Am I, am I here to just look for the things that bring me value? Ultimately, everything in life can and should point to the who, and the who is God is king, God is glorious, God is good, and God is gracious. And as we point people to these, he does the work of saving them. The last weekend of Jesus' life, we find him doing what he always does sharing stories to point us to a bigger truth, saving people, bringing them to himself, ticking off some Pharisees along the way, but ultimately dead set on reminding people who he is. So my hope, my prayer for us as we journey, journey towards uh, Easter together is we would take these stories and we wouldn't just leave them on Sunday morning. we take these stories into our week and we would focus all of our attention over the next six weeks together to journeying to Jerusalem with Jesus. That we point all of our attention and focus to Jesus Christ, the King, leading us towards others and towards the cross as we journey towards Easter. So let me pray for us, and Corbin will come up and close us out. God, this morning, um, you are truly good. You are truly gracious. You are truly King who is humble. And, and powerful and meek and all these things we could say about you. And Father, I pray for us as a church that you would lead us to people who don't need just how to fix life, who don't need just the next quick Band-Aid. God, I pray that you would direct us to men and women who are desperately in need of a king who is in control. I pray that you would desperately and effectively point us to people who are in need of a God who is gracious so we don't have to fear. I pray that you would remind, uh, give us opportunities to share that you are good, better than anything else that we could run to. And Father, as you set up these conversations for us in advance, may we as your ambassadors, servants of you, may we be responsible and share who you are with them. 
point us to you, watch, allow us to watch you walk all the way through to Jerusalem, to, cru- to, to, the cru- to the cross, and ultimately to your resurrection. We thank you for the opportunity this morning. We love you and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.